0: The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's tycoons.
1: Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from our studios at Business Radio X in Tempe, Arizona. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, we've been doing this for a little over two years, 106th episode, I believe it is today. We put together this podcast um, for small business owners by small business owners Landon and I and our other partners, uh, Ryan and Gary, believe that the small business owner community is truly the backbone of the American economy. And so we put together this podcast to highlight them, let them share their stories, and uh, provide advice to other business owners throughout the the country and throughout the world. So with that today, we definitely have some uh, tycoons here with us in the studio. We've got Breck Rice, Chief Revenue Officer, and Todd Delano, CEO of ServeRx, based here in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Todd, why don't we start with you? You're the, you're the CEO of the organization. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself personally? So where did you grow up? What are you passionate about? Do you have any children? Are you married? Where'd you go to college? Whatever you'd like us to know about you personally.
2: Thanks. Uh, yeah, I grew up in the Houston area, so I'm the youngest of three siblings. First, first generation, I guess, to get a college degree. Started started a junior college, went to Texas State University from there and then traveled west three days after graduating. So went to Los Angeles and, and had a cup of coffee in LA as a stockbroker, and then uh, then moved to Phoenix to work for a pharmaceutical company 22 years ago now. So time flies. So, so established roots here in Phoenix for, for three or four years, got promoted in, in the pharmaceutical industry back to Houston, found my wife, had a kid, and then was disenfranchised with corporate America at 30 years old and decided to come out to Phoenix. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit later, but, you know, started one company, started a second company, started a third company, and here we are. And today we have three kids, 17, 11, and four, and three boys, and live in the area, and we're, we're in the community. You know, we're here for life. So um, that's the very short journey of, of who I am and where we're at. And Want me to get into the healthcare company now and t- talk about the journey with ServerX, or do you want to
1: let, yeah, let's hear about yeah, let's hear about Breck's personal story first, and and uh, before we jump over to Breck. So I grew up in a family of boys. My mom had four boys, but with her second marriage, she married a, a man who had another boy and then also a girl. So we do have one girl in there, but uh, I know what it's like to have a house full of boys.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, it's spaced apart every six years. I don't think we can continue the trend. Shauna's four. <laughs> um, you know, we'll see in two years if we continue to the fourth uh, fourth child, but I think we're done. But it keeps it interesting for sure. Yeah, awesome.
1: Well, Breck, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your family, your story a little bit as well.
3: Yeah, so actually born here in Arizona, uh, the youngest of six children. My uh, my dad always said his first four boys were girls, so I have four <laughs> older sisters and one older brother. My parents were school teachers. Uh, my dad was a science teacher at uh, Chandler uh, Junior High, many many moons ago. For a summer vacations, they would travel, and and so we made it all the way up to to uh, British Columbia and and up into to Alaska. And on the way back down, they liked the area in British Columbia, Central BC, uh, bought eight hundred and eighty acres, and we moved up there. So. Got some uh, uh international experience, if you can call it that, in British Columbia, Canada. Got way too cold up there for my mom, so we moved back to the States. So <laughs> moved just back to, uh, to Arizona about uh, eight and a half years ago now to uh to uh to team up with, with Todd and and start ServeRx.
1: serve Awesome. I'll tell you, I you know I've spent some time in British Columbia. It's beautiful, right? And I I just my brain kind of thinks, well, how in the world did a school teacher buy 880 acres of land anywhere? Right now, it was a different time, of course, but still, that just seems crazy to be able to buy 880 acres on a, on a teacher's salary.
3: Yeah, he well, had a few acres here and in, in, uh out in Chandler. I think they had like 10 or 12 acres out there, and and uh, but yeah, the conversion was was very beneficial going to to Canada for sure. Uh, selling that property and then moving back to the states, I think, uh, got him another ten acres. So kind
0: of puts things in perspective.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it came back the same direction. It'd be like me moving back to California now, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Todd, tell us about ServRx. You you were in the pharmaceutical industry, but you were disenfranchised with the corporate side of things. So what? Uh, tell us where we went from there.
2: Yeah, So that's where it begins, right? When I was working in Arizona, I had several drugs in the portfolio as a sales rep, so I'd call on um, internal medicine, orthopedic surgeons, and pain doctors. And so really got a good feel for what happens in the medical community, particularly doctors and their interactions with patients and their interaction with their own staff, that, that little ecosystem of, of primary care and specifically with pain that was the genesis for serve rx i i had known i'd wanted to be an entrepreneur you just you know and people ask all the time what does it take or i kind of want to be one and i always say it chooses you i don't think you choose it and for me the the risk of staying in corporate america or the fear of knowing where i was going to be 20 30 years later was was way more fearful than than leaving corporate america and and so for me it really wasn't a choice i don't i don't i don't think staying was an option. Yeah, we'd moved back to to Phoenix. I had heard of this concept of physicians dispensing medication in their office. Certainly had a lot of contacts within the physician network. We're kind of you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you don't start with a a, you know your first business. You've kind of always tinkered along the way. So I've learned things along the way about how to start businesses. Lost a little money in real estate. Lost a little bit of money in a few other small businesses and made some some silly mistakes along the way. Um, So use that experience combined with my, you know, the relationships in Arizona, helped a doctor in Tucson set up a pharmacy in his office. And this was in a niche specifically for workers' compensation and in and, and, and business. And, and once you get to a certain uh, ecosystem or level of, uh, I don't want to call it business success, I'll say, you realize there's a common theme in small, but semi, like the, the, this, this airwave of businesses that solve problems that are too complex for the average small person to figure out but too small for the big guys to want to insource and figure out, right? Either sure. from time, you know, whatever it is, expertise, time management, all those things. And so that's what we did in, in the field of workers' compensation and in specific with pharmacy. Now, the problem we're solving for doctors uh, was twofold. One, there was a revenue component, and it's well known the lack, you know, the revenue, uh, decline of revenue and physicians working harder and harder to make less. That's, that's a common theme in business or in healthcare. But the second part, as it relates to to work-related injuries, was that there's a lot of paper. It's a paper and in labor intense. It's half medical, half legal. So, there, there's issues getting uh, prescriptions filled at the pharmacy. So, oftentimes, there's more time with the physician's office spent, you know, managing denials of patient medications. And another thing that's common in the pain market from the patient's perspective is the stigma that's sometimes associated with with a work-related injury, in particular, or... God forbid you need a pain med or, or a muscle relaxer or whatever you need at that moment. So there's some anxiety and stigma around that. And the solution we gave the physicians solved both of those. We were able to help as a consultant set up a pharmacy in their practice, help manage it. In fact, save the doctor time. It sounds counterintuitive to say you would set up a pharmacy in a medical practice and yet save them time. But if done right, it did for those doctors who were maybe had a high, high volume of workers' compensation uh, patients in their practice. So we did that successfully with one doctor in Tucson and commuted in, from North Scottsdale. So what I thought, you know, promised the wife, hey, 60, 90 days in, we'll figure this out. We'll scale up and I'll, I'll be back, you know, I'll be home for dinner. <laughs> my my and, favorite
3: thing though, is that you told her you're also gonna take a pay cut to do this too, right? You...
2: Well, that's why, well, well, of course you always, every entrepreneur sells their wife on the fact, hey, we're gonna go from a corporate job, a corporate sales job, 401k, I, th- I think it was a 75% pay cut, I promised her, and I successfully probably only took about a 72% pay cut, so I outperformed <laughs> and year, here go. Year, year one. Didn't tell you that under, uh, then I took a 120 or 30% pay cut and was negative for the next two or three years and didn't promise her that, but. Yeah, the story goes, was commuting from North Scottsdale, two and a half hours each direction. If you know anything about Tucson, you get off I-10, and if you're inland at all, it's another 30 or 40 minutes yep. before you, you get anywhere. So, you know, that was the genesis, got really good at, from medication management to the, the the IT required, the reporting to the state board, the logistics of it, and patient management and care. And what we realized, though, was those were the easy parts. It was easy to scale inside Arizona and got good at it, but try not to get too my, you know, myopic for this conversation, but the fact is, each state has its own ecosystem, its own payer mix, its own algorithm, like a lot of small businesses or any any state, any business oftentimes, there's state requirements, there's national requirements. And in yep. healthcare in particular, and in particular in workers' comp, that subset, there's a lot more complexity with laws, rules, regulations. And so we realized if we were going to scale out of Arizona, that was the toughest problem to solve. It wasn't, we got the med management down, we had the right IT, we had the right staffing, we had the right, you know, had the formula down. And, and that's where Brett came, came into the story. I needed a solution to help scale the financial side and, and Breck in his former job in a healthcare entity called the doctor's office as someone looking for more workers comp, you know, more physicians focused on workers' compensation pharmacy to expand their services. And that part was a match made in heaven, at least from a solution standpoint, except if you're an entrepreneur, you, you're oftentimes not the best employee, and you're certainly not the best uh, uh, channel partner or vendor, not, not by purpose, but it's a natural curiosity. And if we can solve a problem, then we're going to solve a problem. If we can learn, we're going to learn. And if we can execute ourselves, we're going to execute. And so that was, that's really where Servrex took off from, I would say, a pharmacy med management solution to the light bulb went off that, no, no, we're a claims processing, we're a healthcare IT and a financial firm, not a consultant company, not a pharmacy, not a med management company. And and it was that part of the complexity with the healthcare entity that he was involved with that was ignoring the the niche of physicians having pharmacies in their office. And the management companies that helped didn't understand the complexity of the payer mix, the algorithms, that the the IT solutions that were required. So if I've done anything effectively in, in like any of the businesses I've ran or scaled, it's, I understand how to recruit leaders. Uh, I understand how to lead leaders well and get out the way. And that's, that's probably what I did more effectively. And, and Brecht's one of those leaders of, of a handful of people that really make serverx successful. So that's, that's the, that's the story. And, and fast forward, as we scaled state to state complexity, you know, I mean, it, it didn't scale just, you know, Three states was five times more complex than two states. They didn't get easier, actually kind of got more complicated. We had to build our own proprietary IT. So you just kind of learned how to solve problems and scale it and figure it out. And and, uh, fast forward to today, we have several thousand pieces of paper that come to two PO lock boxes, one in Las Vegas, one in Philadelphia. And we have uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars we reconcile daily. $400 $400 receivable size, these are, you know, meds that are 50 to you know, a yeah. few hundred dollars in, in size and checks. And and what happens in workers' comp, and especially in our niche of the out-of-network portion of the spin, it comes via paper. You may have one patient on a check, you may have 10, but we, we fill meds for 15 to 20,000 patients a month in all 50 states. And so the ability for our IT to recognize. Bank lock boxes. They get pieces of paper. Think of our own like junk mail. I was sifting through the junk mail today to sift, you know, the stuff you needed to get to. And we have several thousand pieces of paper each day go to our PO lock boxes. They stacks with checks, stacked without checks. The ones without checks are the useful information. And then those all get pdf Then they get sent to our IT team, and then we reconcile to the penny within forty eight hours. Uh, so that's you know, if 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 we've done anything really well from a business infrastructure standpoint, it was the ability to scale from one office to an IT solution that is able to manage, you know, what is now going on our 13th year and over $800 million of receivables processed in an average size of a few hundred bucks from over 4,000 payers around the country. So that's, that's the secret sauce that had you known that was the task early on, you know, I'm, I'm not a smart person. It wasn't an epiphany of, I could do this. It was almost foolishly solving problems, scaling up, finding the right people. And it's more, I don't say we look, I'm not a visionary, it's you find good people. You, then you look backwards, and you're like, holy cow, what did, you know, how, did, how did we do that? Yeah. And, and that's kind of you know, what would happen with us. Yeah. And so we're in a u- unique niche. Most people are not foolish enough to get into it. Uh, and so we're protected by, <laughs> by this fact. Today, there's 60,000 pharmacies in the country. Uh, we really focus on the community pharmacies. Think of even Bashes as an example, grocery store chains, just not the big five or seven you think of. And uh, there's about 25,000 of the 60 are community pharmacies, and we're contracted with 12,000 of them, so one and two. And any given month, uh, three to 4,000 of those pharmacies will use our service. And, and in particular, the service today is if, if you walk any of us today, if we were hurt on the job, Uh, let's use construction as an example. It's an easy, oftentimes sprains and strains, lower back issues. You pull a back muscle, you at the urgent care. You're hurt at 9 a.m. You're at urgent care by 1030. By 1 p.m., you're with a prescription at your local pharmacy. But then the pharmacy knows it's work-related injury. So, you don't pull out your major medical card. You don't pay cash for the copay. And if you're the pharmacy or pharmacy owner or farm tech, how how do you adjudicate the prescription? So, a typical process we're all used to is if we go out of state to a pharmacy we've never used, but let's say you're with a major medical insurance provider, your name's in a database, right? Yeah. So if they have your birth date, date of injury, or I mean, date of birth, uh, uh, your group number, whatever they have on that card, they can look you up in a database and they'll tell you it's a 20 or $30 copay. On the other side of the transaction on the computer screen you don't see is an adjudication and acceptance from the carrier and they know they're getting another whatever the other part of it is 30 40 50 60 bucks on the backside, and and away you go well in this particular story of workers comp how does that happen it doesn't they have to they believe it's a work-related injury by law they cannot require a copay or your major medical now they have to wait think of even an auto injury we have to wait for an adjuster they have to assess the case and it's often one to four weeks before you're dropped into the database and so there's a leap of faith that they'll even get paid. So that's the solution we provide. We bridge that gap for traditional pharmacies. Uh, we allow them to contract with us, adjudicate or process to us real time, and we make a very complicated and risky transaction feel seamless and integrated. So obviously we'll take on the risk, and we have a lot of man hours involved. So we'll we'll pay a discount on on the receivable, but. When you factor everything in, like any good business, you're only there because you add value and it's more valuable to use you. So that's why they would use us. Conversely, why can we do it better than any one pharmacy? Like a lot of businesses, economies of scale, right? When you're in a niche in anything, it always comes down to expertise and economies of scale. And a good example of that piece of it is if we have to call a carrier or payer because you're an injured worker and we have to sit on the phone, there's no getting around phone time. But if it takes us 15 minutes to uh, to confirm or verify the information for one injured worker, well, if we're talking to a national insurance firm, one patient, 15 minutes cost a certain amount of dollars. It's easy to quantify. We have them on the phone. This is all we're doing. We may have 10 more. So now in 25 minutes, we can get done. What if you were on your own? Would take you 15 minutes and you collapse these types of, you know, that's just one part of the tree of Getting your claim paid and you collapse all those together and that's the business. And we do it to the tune of thousands of prescriptions a month and now hundreds of millions of dollars later.
1: Awesome. So a lot to unpack there. I'm gonna come back to that. So Breck, he mentioned, you know, one of the big things that he that, you know, Todd says he does well is hires the right leaders and gets out of their way, basically. Right. So tell us about your journey to arrive at Serve What was it about Todd or the organization that brought you here?
3: Yeah, so back when I first met Todd, um, I was working for a firm that was had established themselves as the go-to for third-party billing, specifically for workers' comp. And so um, through acquisition and, and other means, we'd pretty much bought up all of our competitors. And so everyone used this one platform. So Todd was reaching out to me for contracting so that he could use a third-party payer so he could expand and we were going through the whole steps of, of putting this agreement together and at the 11th hour um, i had to pull the contract so the company i was working for uh, had a book out for sale and they were being acquired so everything had to 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 cease uh, unfortunately at that time so todd being a smart guy and and uh not just being fine with that, you know, started asking all the right questions. Well, who else out there in the industry does what you do? And I gave him the backstory, well, there was this company out of Utah that we acquired and and so there's not really anyone in this space. Once this program goes to, you know, George Lucas could have wrote this script because it <laughs> honestly was like this this beautiful little program that was like little Anakin Skywalker who was taking care of people and really doing the right thing that was getting sold off to the dark side to a big pharmacy benefit manager, a PBM. And so that left a hole in the marketplace for a true independent third-party payer. So Todd asked all the right questions. He asked who the IT experts were that were in the industry. And he started connecting those dots to to fill that niche now that there was going to be a hole there. Now, I had some some uh, handcuffs. I couldn't immediately jump on board and, and go uh, worked for Todd initially, but my right hand person uh, that worked with me, she didn't have those same uh, restrictions, and so I, I, Todd tells the story the best.
2: Oh, <laughs> I'm not sure I could do better than that. I will say, well, let me frame that piece in the larger narratives, right? So, to back up a bit, Breck had mentioned something for those people who aren't in healthcare. There's two sides. Make no mistake about it. In this axis of healthcare, there is payers, and there are providers. And there's there's no getting around that, right? the The payers are the insurance get, uh, industry. They underwrite premiums. they underwrite the in the industry, but they also set the rules. And so it's a very powerful side of the equation. And the providers we think of as physicians, but they're everything from from anyone on that side, pharmacies, doctors, you know the labs, the x-rays, anyone who provides the service to the patient. and And patients are their friends. They care for the patient. There's a very unique and interesting relationship that happens with the payer side. So, what we do at ServerX is we are provider friendly, right? We're patient and provider friendly, meaning we we maximize the service for this side, and we sit at odds with the with the payer side for for contractual relationship reasons that are pretty complex. If you want to ask me more, I'll you know I'll share more with that piece of it. So that's that's the the Star Wars uh, yeah, narrative that, that Breck yeah. was framing. <laughs> Now, the part of the story he mentioned about kind of our journey as a business and I, that it is a pivotal point where in business, you're presented with a crisis. We'd, I'd, I'd already sold some accounts in the South and Southeast. I had no solution in hand. Like a true entrepreneur, you, kind of, you don't fake it necessarily, but you sell it, then you figure it out. I had sold it and didn't have it figured out about how we were going to you know process and pay and do all the things that needed to happen. And, but I was counting on a contract that was taking longer than it should have through uh, the big entity Breck spoke of, now, now learning that it was slowed down for other reasons internally, and then cut from me within days or weeks of having the contract in hand. And, and, and this happened then, has happened several times since in Server X. There's these moments where there's a recoil from entrepreneurs, right? And what do you do? And, and, and the ability to kind of calm your brain down and compartmentalize, you know, don't be a victim. What happened? No blaming, just to literally look around the room and say, where do we go from here? What does it mean? What are the threats? How real are they? What's the timetable? How long? There's this process of assessing the damage and then seeking the opportunities, right? And you can only do that if you stay calm and and vigilant. And it's, uh, you know, not to use a war zone lightly. It's not a real war zone, but psychologically it is. And it always is. And you have to be comfortable with that fact that it's never, never static and never easy. But that was the opportunity I mentioned to you guys. I'm really good at, you know, maybe leading people, finding people, whatever that story is. But rather than recoiling when Breck said that, rather than calling the client saying I couldn't pick up the accounts, rather than doing all these other things, staying small, I jumped on planes immediately and jumped into people's backyards, into their restaurants, and flew into Tennessee and talked to people in Utah and sold people on a vision. Because I know anytime there's big acquisitions, there's people that are left behind, there's parts of the industry that people were passionate about that's left behind when I knew naturally if you're a provider entity and you're bought by a payer specific entity there's going to be some damage and there's going to be people that want to continue to solve the problems and so that was that was the pivot and that's when ServerX went from a full service management company to what we are today right which is a claims processing company and serves a niche that that other company quite frankly had left behind so that's that's the piece of the story and that that was a really, I would say, a fork in the road in our journey. Yeah. yeah. So
1: it becomes a little complicated because I, I, as far as I envision it, and I, I would not pretend to say I fully understand everything that you just explained and how the process works, but you guys are essentially right in the middle between the payer and the provider, right? And you're trying to make it easier on both sides and probably better financially on both sides would be my guess. Is that fair to say? Almost.
2: It's fair to say that we make it easier and we make it financially beneficial to the payer side. What's unique in workers' comp is you're not required to be, to sign into networks to have access to the patient lives. And think about what that means. So, if you're with a major, if your family, for example, you're signed on to a major medical plan, the providers have to be, contractually signed on with that major medical plan. Yep. So then the fee, the fee structures, the IT integrations, these things are negotiated, and, and it's not seamless, but it's the infrastructure is in place to, to manage that, that pay cycle and, and information share. In most states, insurance companies cannot obligate providers to go into network to service these patients. Think about what that means. States set rules that protect workers that work in any state. They set the rules and they set fee schedules. Payers can, if they choose to, underwrite patient lives and get, you know, put contracts in place with large employers in those states. But they can't demand or dictate that the provider side signs into networks to get as- access to those patient lives. Are you tracking that? It's a very, yep. and that is the pain point. So you have payers who are, control the money, often control legislation, often control, you know, the rules of the game. But there's one little rule they can't control in workers' comp, which is you can't obligate the providers to sign into your network. They're used to telling the provider, hey, Mr. Pharmacy, you want access to this one million lives in Arizona. Here's our PBM contract. Here's our rates. Take it or leave it. The other pharmacy will if you don't. And depending on the size of your pharmacy and, you know, economy, law of economics, right? The more leverage you have, the better rates you have. The, the less leverage you have, the worse rates you get. We come in and almost serve as I would describe it as a union almost to the small providers, which to me is any independent pharmacy, is is any anybody who's a business owner who's not part of a large entity. And there's power in us because when they process the claims to ServerX, we now own the rights to those receivables. And now, large insurance company doesn't owe doesn't uh, owe a hundred dollars to a thousand pharmacies; they owe ServerX hundred thousand dollars. And that's a different conversation, right? Yeah. Both both economically for us, it's more advantageous for us to be aggressive. When I say aggressive, legally, right, what's legally obligated for them to pay. And, and number two, we know a lot more than the independent pharmacies with you know, how to get paid to make sure your notes and everything's properly submitted. Because what they want is one technical misstep on paperwork, one technical misstep on a note, and they want the gray area to be able to deny. And, and then, to be fair, they would argue... We just have to have it all buttoned up right we have all need all 10 things in if you got a 95 9.5 on your homework it's an f Mm -hmm. and you get a zero you don't get a 95. and so you know our job is to make sure they they make a's and so that that's the difference though in a normal so we do help the we would argue we help the industry and by helping the industry we help the payers because if you continue to deny access to medical care the attorneys would love nothing more than to file claims, and like anything else, how many claims have to be filed before the pain we create is much smaller than, than that pain. So that's a, that's a nuance, but it's an important one to know because you see the juxtaposition of us being this middleman between the big, the big boys, uh, the payers, and, and then the providers. So.
3: Yeah. yeah, the the individual patient, you know, their experience, uh, the way that we've set it up, just to take it one step further, is a no hassle, no delays. They can get same day service if they're using one of our in network pharmacies. The benefit to the pharmacy as a provider is we're mitigating their risk. We're allowing them go ahead and dispense the medication. We'll cover you. So we have a contract with them that we're going to pay them. Um, whether we collect or not. So they can go ahead and just take care of the patient, move forward uh, with their day taking you know on the next script that they've got to fill, and the patient gets taken care of that same day too. So that's very, very unique about that, that structure uh, because no one is pre-enrolled into workers' comp like you are in all the other healthcare plans, your major medical and Medicare and all those plans. So the injury day, is when they finally get enrolled and so eligibility hasn't even been set up yet but they still need medical attention and they need medicine and so we make that the wheels go around we take care of that to make sure that there's a no hassle no delays uh, opportunity for that patient and that the pharmacy's risk has been mitigated on that as well too so that's taking it even a step further and how m- much we're streamlining it for the payer side now, the payers going to pay the same amount, whether we bill them or whether one of those uh, other pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs have been mentioned a couple of times. They're going to bill out about the same amount because each state has set up a state fee schedule. Well, most states do. There's some usual and customary states, but, but there's a, a, a state industrial commission usually comes together and say this is a fair and reasonable price to reimburse the pharmacy at. So we never bill above that. We bill at whatever the, the right uh, price is. So does the pharmacy benefit manager if they're getting the claim. So go back to that, that company that I used to work with that was now the largest third-party payer is now going to the dark side, going to the payer side. So instead of he- helping patients and, and pharmacies is now going to go over and be on the payer side uh, and be owned by a big pharmacy uh, benefit manager. Why would they want all of that information coming to them? So they could redirect all those claims into their existing networks because those PBMs make 80 to $120 per transaction by doing that. Third-party payer passes that on the most part of it. So we we pay at about 70% of whatever the fee schedule is. The PBM pays the pharmacy at about minus 70% of Mm. the fee schedule. Gotcha.
1: So the injured worker, do they have any idea that this is all being administered by ServRx or it's just on the back end at the pharmacy, they have a contract with you guys?
2: We're a business-to-business solution, so the patient has no idea. In fact, I mean, in a perfect world, they, they know nothing of, you know, when it goes smooth and for any new patients that are contracted with our, our services with the pharmacy, they have no idea of any of this. And so we don't spend a lot of time, one, directly marketing or, or number two, even letting the local community know we exist. We really are a B2B and we're white labeled or a private, very private solution. So I think we feel more like a, an insurance firm, you know, behind the scenes, but there's a lot of, a lot of heavy lifting that goes on on behalf of, of the patients by us. And, and, and for us, you know, we, I mean, we take pride in that, right? If you mentioned my journey, very, very you know, short version of it, but when you are an underdog and you have an underdog mentality, and then you also have an entrepreneurial in, mentality you take a lot of pride in servicing the community at need, whether it's individuals or whether it's small businesses. And so, you know, for us, that's, that's enough, you know, we get enough pleasure from knowing that getting the feedback from the pharmacies who are the ones who really are the champions, right? They're the direct frontline workers who help the, the injured workers. So we're behind the scenes, but we're very much intimately involved. And we, you know, we take great pride in that. And, and I'll also say just regarding kind of the business journey and uh, it, it, when you're doing good for others, you don't, it doesn't have to be a direct benefit. Life is, you never do exactly what you want anyways. Like we don't dream of workers' compensation. <laughs> dream, you know, may want to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't wake up and say, man, if I can get into this complex, tedious, nefarious, I'm a, I'm a kid who's ADD and not very detail-oriented by nature growing up, no world did I say, if I can just literally have 20,000 pieces of paper dropping me, I'm responsible for a day, and then have IT. Like, but what you do is you solve problems for people, you realize you're, you're good at something, And ultimately, you set up a group of people around you that you enjoyed solving problems with. And that's what life's about, right? Friends, family, life's tough. There's problems to solve. If you wake up and solve it with people that you know really have your best interests and you're doing a good mission, then that's really the the sweet part of the journey. And and everything else takes care of itself. And uh, we haven't had one—we have not no turnover. So if you hire right and hire high, if you hire people before you're big, and we went from the executives or the people I hired when we did less than a million dollars in revenue— Last year we did 80 plus million dollars in revenue uh, for the year. Same people, same executives that I was able to hire, to take a leap when we only had a million in revenue and negative earnings with not a lot of cash to burn. Even were the same people that's still involved, and so that's what's unique to identify the industry experts to make a fair, fair by all sides, right? So, so where you're really partners in a deal by design, whether it's shares of the company, been very generous on purpose. When I say generous, it's an even exchange, but. I had this abundance mentality, right? Of whether it's equity with the right executives, taking care, of the, taking care of the people on the team, and also with taking chances. I mean, what we do is a math game. What we solve is we, we don't get, so if our collection rate's 82% on, on what we pay, what we bill out, we don't get 82%. We either get 100 or zero. Ours is a game of how many, and that's back to me as an ADD kid. My mom would tell me I was a C student. I said, Mom, I'm an A student. I only turn in seven out of 10 of my projects, but make no mistake about it, when I turn them in, you know, I'm really good at it. That's our game, right? That's the math and and kind of back to the life philosophy that, that also very much translates to the micro part of the business and then the macro philosophy of business and life is it's it's kind of like blackjack, right? Or uh, I say UFC fighting too. You're not gonna go undefeated, right? Like we're not Mayweather, we're not 50 and 0, but if I could be nine and seven and still be a, a champion. Yeah. You're gonna have a cauliflower ear and you're gonna have some <laughs> few bruises. And so for me, and I'll hear people say, well, the universe is bad or people are bad. You can't trust. Yes, but. But for the fact that I only have to be right 51% of the time and play a bunch of hands and be consistent with how I play my hands. So as long as you play the game of business or life in a consistent manner, then if it's a 55%, if I'm right 55% of the time, I'm yielding a nice return. As long as I'm disciplined, I can live with the outcomes and don't put too much on one hand. and and that's a philosophy that served me well in business and in life where I continue to take these chances and we take chances. And, and otherwise, we couldn't have scaled as a company either unless I, as the leader, was comfortable with, hey, we're going to take some losses in this state. We're going to calibrate. We're going to figure it out. And, and so that's the mentality kind of personally that kind of naturally aided, you know, w- what, is, what is the service we provide. Yeah.
1: So a lot, of, a lot of different directions I wanna take this, but let's take a quick break. We'll hear a quick call to action for our listeners and we'll come back and unpack a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back to the program. We're here with Breck Rice and Todd Delano with ServeRx uh, here in Phoenix. We're talking about what they're doing really to, to disrupt the healthcare industry as far as I'm concerned. But we unpacked you know, quite a few things right right before the break. And I wanna talk a little bit about your philosophy about the business itself, right? Because there, there are a couple of things. Entrepreneurs, you, you mentioned being ADD. A, a lot of entrepreneurs are ADD. I, I would probably say 85% or more of entrepreneurs are, are ADD. And so, first of all, I just want to mention that doesn't mean that you can't accomplish things, right? I mean, we all have difficult things that we deal with in life, and ADD is one of those. It could be ADHD. It could be a lot of different things. But we have the ability to accomplish whatever we put our minds to. A lot of it is being willing to take the risk. But then also, one of the big things that you mentioned is surrounding yourself with the right people to kind of offset some of the weaknesses that you may be bringing to the table and couple those with the strengths that you have personally right so let's talk a little bit more about what the team looks like and I, and I'll frame it this way is a lot of entrepreneurs and and in our business this is what we do we work with business owners day in and day out and the hardest thing that most business owners have to overcome is letting go and letting others do what they do best because there're a lot of them want to control everything this is my baby i built this i started this i I took all the risk, and I'm still taking all the risk but how what advice would you give to business owners that are listening to the program as to how you've been able to let go and surround yourself by the right, with the right leaders to do what they need to do
2: so I'm usually good at I would like to think I'm good at answering questions. This is a tricky one to me because this is a little bit of uh the way I would frame it is like learn behaviors like you know what you're born with versus what you learn how malleable are we and and this is a really tough one to solve so A lot of us entrepreneurs are risk takers. A lot of us are ADD, but I I do think you can bifurcate us into those two groups very quickly. And I'm not sure how you get those in one pond to jump to the other side, right? So we're all fairly Socratic. We're all kind of, you know, probably have this belief in ourselves. We can do certain things. We take risks. But the two camps, I've seen these camps and we're very different. So I, I, I can't necessarily answer for that camp, but I will say that if you have the qualities to do that, you've had them early on. And so, that's, you know, so you, that's more of a self-introspective question. And so if you're in the camp of saying, I have a hard time letting go and trusting, it's probably in every area of your life. And, and, and because I've never was born, I don't even have that trait, don't know what it looks like. So not to make it about that, but an example of that, and you know, Brex heard me tell the story, went to three high schools, had a pretty tough upbringing. I was best man in four weddings from high schools, different high schools, and a fifth friend asked me to offici- officiate his wedding. So I, I had this genetic component, right? That was, it's not about me. I trust others. I love others. And that's carried me in the business life. So I would just say that, you know, the philosophy works. I mean, I, and it's the only philosophy to scale, right? So you nailed what the philosophy is, but how do you do that? If you're not part of that camp, I don't think I'm qualified to, to answer that. And, and Breck's a good example, though, of whether you're in my camp or not, the strategy is the same. You have to find industry experts and you got to get out the way you can't scale even with our internal employees i'm a very empathetic open person i've learned early on i can't get to know i mean i can know people but you really can't dig in to everybody you got to be selective for 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 everyone's sake it's not selfish it's for the sake of the entity you got to stay out the way of human relations you got to trust people to put them in the right spot for those relationships and you got to trust on the professional side so breck was the world class industry expert on the pbm management and relationships with pharmacies I hired the CIO that was an industry expert on that side. I hired a, a CFO when I only had a dozen employees before I scaled 10x from there. And I hired a, a CFO that had public uh, accounting experience was a CPA and worked for a, a big firm. The list goes on and on. I have five or seven executives around me that uh, probably made 20% of what I could have made probably for three or four years had we not invested. But, but when you find those people, you got to find them. You know, how do you emotionally get there? I don't know. But it's, if you don't, you're never going to scale. You're never going to scale. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I would follow that up with, you know, you mentioned, I I think you said you went from a million in revenue or even less, obviously, and that's when you were starting to add this executive team. And last year, I think you said around 80 million, right? Mm -hmm. That's rarefied air, right? I mean, very, very, very few businesses in this country ever get to 80 million. Everybody thinks, you know, they think about Amazon or Facebook or Google and, you know, all these companies that are doing billions and billions in revenue. But the reality is 99% of the businesses in this country will never surpass a million dollars in revenue, let alone anywhere near $80 in revenue. But it's that scaling is where they get in trouble, right? They don't know how to scale. They don't know who to hire and when. They don't know when to step out of the way. You know, there's, there's this thing that we do in our business where we, we take an owner of a business through what's called the owner dependency index, right? Mm -hmm. And we have them go through and answer this questionnaire to find out how dependent the business is on them personally, right? If the score is high, that's a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like golf, right? You, You want a lower score because the less dependent your business is on you personally day to day, the less, the, the more it's worth, right? Sure it's a hard thing for people to get around. And so I guess maybe let me rephrase the question. So from a, from a mindset standpoint, where were you in thinking this is, a, this is a risk, right? I mean, you didn't even really have the revenue that you needed to hire great individuals in executive positions. So what did you do? How did you get your mind around that? Did you take on financing? Did you take on investors to be able to do that? What, what was that process like?
2: We were able to scale at a rate that could almost, so I had one of the initial partners, two of his founding partners. I was the majority controller. Now the other partners, a minority partner, he was more vested early on. But we, we were able to use cash generated at some level. And then he is a client. So there was, if money was put in, it was from him as a primary client early on. So we were lucky that we never, surprisingly, if you looked at the trajectory, the trickiest part And I always tell, ironically, harder to go from, or not ironically, harder to go from, and not from the sales generation, I'm talking about from management or execution, from zero to one million, we went from one to two, then two to 10. And that two to 10, and then 10 to 31. So if you ask me from like, I don't know, 2013 to 15, maybe it was, to go from two million to $31 million in revenue, $200 receivable size on average, highly paper, highly complex. You know, that was the tricky part of where we went but i knew the people we were hiring i knew the relationships they had and and so it was not a. I mean, I, it, it wasn't hard i would say i you know I, I would think relative to our size we were in a unique position if you hire the right cio in our industry and you get the right it so we really are an it firm i guess is the way i would answer that it's like from a true practical if i don't understand our industry if you have the right it people which was technology you couldn't lease off the off the streets you know think about uh several hundred thousands of receivables coming in from multiple payers and, and, and the, the, how that works through your, your call center and your billing and collections team, how you pay multiple entities. Those aren't things that you just go Google and you find. So you have to find a CIO that has built it before. So the leap of faith was, was, was Breck encouraged me that, you know, we had what it took and, and, and then we jumped and CIO, business leader, and, and it was just go, I mean, go time. So. I mean that's that's kind of how we solved it. It was not as hard. It wasn't as scary as it sounded. The scarier part was the leap of faith that we guarantee pharmacies payments before we receive them. And I very quickly went from an entrepreneur that owned a tattoo shop and flipped a couple houses and lost some money and was in a multi level market. All the things you do in your twenties as you learn to be a business person. To like three or four years later, had families moving out of state to come work for us. Had bank lines uh, guaranteeing national grocery store change. You know millions of dollars. Because we put, we guarantee money in 30 days. Our payment cycle on average is 90 days, but it's somewhere between day 20 to never, yeah. right? So there's a there's this risk of how does someone, and the short answer is if I was, if I looked at failing, there's no way we would have did it, right? I always say it's, I mean, you've watched the downhill skiers, it's kind of jump. I mean, that's, and you just, how do you not hit a tree? Because you never, you never focus on hitting the tree, right? Yeah. You may hit it, but you can't look at it because I would have been paralyzed. So yeah, we- we scaled. We probably only went upside down a quarter million dollars, let's say, in like cash flow. But at any one moment, we probably had three, four, five million dollars at risk. Having you know, uh, I'm gonna say no safety net, but I guess I can say it now, ten years later, having no safety net.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's typical of entrepreneurs, right? I mean they they're doing it with no safety net, and that's. That's the thing is from the outside looking in, everybody thinks that entrepreneurs are like these overnight successes, right? And all of a sudden they've got all this money and gosh, I, w- I want to be like him, right? Right. And I want to co- build a company like his, but it, it's blood, sweat, and tears and it's step by step and it's doing, you know, all the things along the way. So, Breck, I want to I transition to you. So, tell me what it was like for you coming from a large organization… 401k plan, full benefits. There may even may have even been a pension. I don't know, right? What was that like to have that conversation with your wife to say, okay, honey, we're gonna we're gonna move over to this startup. I think Todd is awesome. He's bald like me. Let's go. <laughs> we for have it. a
3: lot in common. <laughs> yeah. We go to the same barber. Yeah. Uh so you know, I had signed up to help community pharmacies about Almost twenty years. It'll be twenty years uh, next year. So I uh, started in two thousand and three. Um, I'd signed up to help these these community pharmacies, independent, uh, independently owned people serving their community, and yet yeah, expanded to much larger chains as well. But we were really helping them and helping their clients or those injured workers that were coming to them for for help so when this whole program was changing you know the big company i was working for and was you know i keep saying saying it, they truly went to the dark side i didn't sign up for that and so it was an easy decision for me not as easy for my wife but it was an easy decision for me to leave the company and so i did and My going away present, because I was the one guy who actually sat down with all those entities, those pharmacy entities on, you know, two or three times a year just to do business reviews with them. Uh, My going away present was not only my non-compete that I needed to honor, but it was also a a TRW, a, a temporary restraining order. Because they didn't want me going out telling that community that I had personal relationship with what was about to happen to them. You know, those reimbursements that we used to give you, you know, those 60, 70, eighty dollar reimbursements, now they're going to be four dollars. Are you cool with that? <laughs> you know So that was why I had that, uh, that restraining order to, to, to shut me up. Once my wife saw that true nature of that entity, then she was on board for you know let's get out of Dodge. These these people only only love you when they can milk you and and now you know let's let's do something different.
1: Yeah, it's a different world these days. I I almost kind of question the whole non compete and you know all those sorts of things because one they're tough to enforce. It really is just about locking somebody up in le- a legal battle. And are you going to be willing to pay the the dollars right? And I'm not an attorney. I have a brother in law that is, and we've had this conversation, but. Nowadays, I think about it like okay i can't I can't go out and tell people that I've left one company to go to work for another company doing the exact same thing, but I can sure update my LinkedIn profile right and so i just I just question the whole reason that those even exist nowadays, so anyway that's that's a, a topic for another time, but I want to get one last question in um, before we run out of time here. so the work comp fund. Or, you know, working with work comp funds, my understanding, and I could be completely wrong here, but my understanding is that some states have state funds and in some states it's private. Is that true?
2: Yeah, and Breck, you, you, you're the expert. Yeah, you speak more it.
3: so, you know, most most states will have a state fund that that may be administered by someone else. So it's not a true state fund, but some states do have a true state fund, which actually is a monopoly, uh, if you will. Um, so, like Ohio is a really good example. The Ohio Bureau, the the, the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation, they control like ninety eight percent of the lives in in the entire state of Ohio. So every employer gets their work comp insurance through that, that state fund, and pharmacies have to bill direct to that state fund. Uh, Washington state has the same with the Washington labor and industry, or Washington L&I uh, also has a, you know, a, a monopoly on that state. But uh, outside of that, New York has a pretty strong one. There's a few strong ones there, but outside of that, your largest carrier uh, is actually Liberty Mutual. So you still have the really big carriers, that also cover workers compensation so liberty mutual being the largest travelers hartford would be some of the big but big payers but as, as todd mentioned earlier in our conversation we we have over 4000 payers so there could also be bob's pizza shack that's self insured and and that's a direction that we really would like to now focus on is these self insured employers are are absolutely getting ripped off by that middleman, that pharmacy benefit manager, that PBM middleman, and we have a way of removing that middleman. You've probably seen a lot of my LinkedIn posts that say, hashtag remove the middleman, because we could actually take that PBM out of that mix and save these self-insured employers a lot of money, okay? We can also then continue to pay our pharmacies a fair and reasonable reimbursement. You take that middleman that's that's take that's putting $80 to $120 in their own pocket and split that between the two entities, meet in the middle, it's a really good win-win situation. Today you've got a win-lose situation. Um the only one winning is is the pharmacy benefit manager. When when a PBM has gotten so large and so powerful and making so much money that it can buy the carrier there's something wrong with that okay when your entire health system that you cover 65 million lives and you've got companies paying into that plan you've got employees paying into that plan but yet your pharmacy benefit manager represents 75 percent of your profit there's something wrong with that so Todd said early on that there was
1: about 25,000 of these smaller pharmacies. You guys work with about 12,000 of them any given month. 3 or 4,000 of them process, a, you know, a, a, some sort of transaction with you. How many of these self-employed companies are out there that are ideal clients for you guys where it's saving them money and, you know,
3: thousands. Uh, just here in the state of Arizona, there's, you know, 30 or 40 fairly large employers. Uh, both of our power companies are self-insured. Yeah. Our school districts are self-insured. Our municipalities are, so- well, you're paying for that. You know, your <laughs> munici- our mis- municipality where we live, uh, Austin, we, anytime there's a, a, an injury in that city, we as taxpayers are paying for that. So it's self-funded. Uh, really large trucking company right here in town, self-insured. Yeah. Uh, we could save them millions of dollars by cutting out the middleman.
1: Well, hopefully they hear this podcast. It's a pretty big podcast. I'm just telling you. Awesome.
2: Let me make one yeah. point on that. And let me close on it. You asked Breck a question, a personal question. Here's how you, when you said, you know, how do you, how do the right people work for an organization? You asked him a very personal question. How did you decide to move from a big company to a smaller? Where did you go first? Naturally
1: your wife or your spouse, was spouse. Yeah.
2: and then but right in but why did he do it he did it he, he didn't speak of the company or me or what right. we have a lot of leaders friends in the industry were, didn't were peers. speak about the money it was like right. i was here i was solving a problem i was passionate about the philosophy of the company changed i was more beholden to the people i served and you could tell how passionate he speaks for small businesses and injured workers and it's like that was much bigger than and it really was that for him it wasn't is this a better economic situation it is now but it couldn't have He couldn't have suggested that answer. It really was a passion, which shows you, you have, the company has the right people and leadership for for the right reasons, and pharmacies pick up on it, employers pick up on it, and that's why he is who he is. Yeah.
1: Well, and we even hear more about that nowadays, right? Because you got the great resignation going on, and and the younger generation specifically want to work for a company that is supporting a cause, Mm -hmm. right? Something that they're passionate about everybody has to make money. Everybody has to be able to support themselves and their families, but it's less about the money today. And it was less about the money for you, Breck, when you made the, the decision to leave and to, to join ServeRx. And so it is, it's, it's a way to think about things differently. And as employers, we do have to build an organization that people can be proud to work for. All right. Anything else you guys want to add, how to get a hold of you guys? What, uh, what else can we Say yeah, here. I
3: mean, absolutely. Um, you know, I think our next phase is really how do we help not just the injured workers and the pharmacies who serve them, but now we have a lot of self-insured employers out there that we could help. A couple of years back, uh, Todd had the vision to, to create a, a white glove uh, concierge pharmacy solution to help uh, help injured workers. And so there's a lot of really cool things we can do on that side of the house that we haven't even scratched the surface on yet. So yeah, uh, reach out to us, uh, we're at ServRx. Uh, my email is is just my first name, Breck, B-R-E-C-K, at dot com.
1: right, hey, thanks so much for being here, guys. Really appreciated the conversation. Look forward to following you guys as, as time goes on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, you Austin. Bet.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin Landon and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.